This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Right, a little back and off, it sounds like, uh, going on when it comes to the U.S.-China trade war. No one better to discuss it than Sean Donnan. He's our senior trade reporter. Great to be alongside him here in his hometown. Jason Kelly here, Peggy Collins, and Sean Donnan. So, Sean, back and off, Secretary Ross giving a little extra time to one of the central figures in all of this, which is Huawei. Help us understand what's going on here. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's one of these classic trade war moves where it's backing off a little bit, escalating on another side, uh, trying to send a message to the markets and to China that isn't necessarily the clearest. Um, what the Trump administration has done today is it has extended for another 90 days a pretty narrow exemption that it had given early on in the Huawei fight back in May uh, to the uh, operators of rural networks and other existing Huawei customers in the United States and to some suppliers like Google um, who service Huawei's handset business. So this applies, for example, to uh, your Android operating system on smartphones and security updates. Google is allowed to to extend those uh, or send those up updates out to smartphones that that Huawei smartphones that have the Android operating system on it for another 90 days. Uh, But Secretary Ross pretty clearly today saying that uh, all these people need to wean themselves off of Huawei. He also added another 46 subsidiaries of Huawei to this uh, Commerce Department blacklist that basically bans U.S. suppliers from doing business with, with any of these entities. So there's a bit of backing off, a bit more time there, but there's also, you know, we're on a clear path of of escalation here, so I, you know, I'm 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 here to slightly rain on the parade. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the market certainly took this as a positive single signal, Sean. How positive do you think it is? Yeah, I, I don't think it's that positive at all. I, I really don't. We're no closer to a deal with China today than we were yesterday or three or four months ago, even. Uh, I think the, the president over the weekend and the people around him tried very hard to talk down recession fears, yeah. talked, uh, tried very hard to play up uh, the state of negotiations with China. But everything we hear uh, here in Washington um, and over in Beijing is that things are still kind of stuck uh, and that we are on this path. To escalation that we can't forget. September 1, $110 billion in, in, in new products from China are going to get hit with a 10% tariff. Right. So synthesize this with what we heard last week, because last week felt like one of the biggest weeks that we've had so far in this trade war, where it started to come into sharp economic relief, especially as it relates to the consumer and the effect that this may have on us as 
sort of everyday going about our business human beings. Yeah. So look, I mean, what, what we saw last week was uh, a really interesting week in the markets in terms of digesting what what, what the trade wars uh, meant for for the global economy. We saw those fears over global growth and and the possibility of a U.S. recession growing uh, hit hit a lot of stocks, mm-hmm. and we saw also um, uh, these consumer goods, and we saw the president acknowledge uh, that maybe American consumers were paying some of the costs of these and that tariffs, felt like a big deal. and that felt like a big deal in terms of in terms of admission. But I, you know, I think one of the really hard things in this trade war is to discern or make a difference between the actions that the administration is taking and what they are and, and, and a lot of the the public statements that they are making a lot of which are focused at trying to calm down the markets trying to calm down some of the fears out there to kind of socialize mm-hmm. their trade war in, 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 in a while and you look at the long game here and the reality is all this year we've been escalating and this trade war has been getting uglier and uglier and we're starting to see that having an impact on and show up in in, in the economic data, which is what the market is starting to realize. So, Sean, when you talk about this next deadline, this September 1st, for $110 billion in, in tariffs going on in addition, how soon might the consumer see that and where? Yeah. So, look, anything that comes into the country after September 1st will be hit with this 10% tariff. Uh, anything that comes in beforehand won't be. <laughs> that means if you go out now and, and, and do your back-to-school shopping, you're, you're going to be 10% better off, potentially, than you are in kind of September, October, November. This time takes th- this stuff takes time to filter down and through the economy. And that's one of the things that we've, we, we've seen. And I think it's one of the reasons why the market and a, a lot of Wall Street economists have, have looked at these trade wars and said, well, I'm not seeing a direct impact yet, uh, and, and right. so on. But th- this stuff takes time. It's slow burn stuff. You know, even a, a, if, if I put a product on a ship in, in Shanghai today, it's going to take three weeks to get to me. Uh, and then it's going to take another two weeks to get to the store. It's, it's, this is not an, an immediate switch. Uh, just 20 seconds left. Sean, what's the next big date here? Are we looking forward to the G7? Like, what, what's the next thing? Tweets notwithstanding. Yeah, so tweets notwithstanding, and it's hard to do that. Uh, but uh, this weekend uh, in France, in Biarritz, we'll, we'll see G7 uh, leaders, including Donald Trump, gathering, talking about uh, the slowdown in, in global growth. We'll be looking hard to that. And then we're looking for – there's an expectation the White House has raised this of uh, President Xi and President Trump getting on the phone right. at some point in the coming days. Uh, we'll be looking for that. Yeah. And then it's September 1 and Tariff Day. Right. Personal meeting, question mark, from that. That tweet. Uh, personal uh, meeting, question mark, and maybe a phone date first. All right. A good personal meeting with you, Sean Donnan. Great to be in your town. Senior trade reporter for Bloomberg. Follow him on Twitter, sdonnan.com. Jason Kelly, Peggy Collins here on Bloomberg. Well, of course, Marriott wants you to stay as long as you want, but now they've got a different twist for their guests. Here to tell us about it is Tony Capuano, back with us. He is the Executive Vice President and Chief Global Development Officer of Marriott International. He's actually based close to where we are down here in Washington, but he's up in New York today. Tony, great to have you back. Great to be back. It's a little lonely here in the studio. But, I know. Uh, I know. To be here. You had a little Jackson Brown to sort of keep you yeah. company there. <laughs> uh, so tell me about this new thing you guys are rolling out. This is all-inclusive. Is this the first time you guys are getting into this? Well, it's interesting. When we acquired Starwood, one of the assets we acquired 
is an all-inclusive resort, uh, right. Weston, Playa Conchao in Costa Rica. Ah, right. And it gave us the opportunity to really explore what's different in terms of how you sell all-inclusive, what's different in terms of the operating model, and what are the requirements from a technology perspective. And it convinced us that it was the right time to jump into the business. We've seen dozens and dozens all-inclusive resorts developed all over the Caribbean and, the, and coastal Mexico. And now we've got a set of platforms to compete for those opportunities. Tony, why do you think now was the right time in particular in terms of what your customers are looking for? Well, I think you've talked with us in the past about our new loyalty program, Bonvoy, and the importance of giving really extraordinary redemption opportunities to those loyal customers. And we see from the consumer research more and more demand for simple vacations. And the all-inclusive pricing model really offers that to our customers. And so, uh, Tony, tell us about this, because one of the interesting things, especially looking at this Riviera, is it Nayarit? Nayarit, yes, uh, near uh, uh, Puerto Vallarta. Right. So, I mean, what it looks like you're doing there is you've got a number of your brands that will sort of be side by side offering a slightly different and I would imagine like slightly different cost uh, experience. Help us understand sort of bringing the brands together there. Well, I think that's exactly right. We'll give consumers a wide variety of price points, uh, accommodation styles and experiences. But for our development partner, partner, Artha Capital, the ability to really realize some pretty extraordinary development and construction efficiencies Mm. in terms of back of house and infrastructure. The last time I was with you, we talked about some of the multi-brand projects we've done across the U.S. And this is that same theory on a much grander scale. And so as you look across the portfolio now, where are you seeing the most growth? Because I would imagine that gives you some window into the global consumer, the global travel consumer, both business and especially in this case, the leisure traveler. Well, North America, notwithstanding some of the economic headwinds, continues to be our biggest generator of new deal volume, followed closely by Asia Pacific. And I say Asia Pacific specifically, while we've seen a bit of a slowdown In China deal volume, the balance of Asia, particularly Japan, South Korea, Singapore, continue to be really vibrant growth markets for us. Tony, which of your brands do you think will push into this exclusive market most quickly? Well, I, you know, we've, we've come out saying there are six or seven of our brands in our 30 brand portfolio that we've identified as making sense for the first phase of all inclusive. I think the one that's getting the most press is Mm Ritz-Carlton. While there are lots of all-inclusive brands, there really is not much in the way of true identified global luxury in this space. And it's the one that's generated the most inbound inquiries for us after the announcement. Well, and I would imagine that's because you do think, well, Ritz-Carlton now getting into this. This has been all-inclusive, has been a fairly established concept uh, for a long time. In this sort of setup, how do you ensure that Ritz-Carlton still feels like a Ritz-Carlton with essentially sort of different economics for for the consumer at least? Well, as is always the case with all of our brands, but especially in the luxury tier, it starts with our people, making sure we have the right service training, making sure our associates around the world understand what that that service delivery expectation is for the consumer – And really all-inclusive, I'm not sure the expectations change that dramatically. Mm -hmm. It's really most different in terms of how we sell and price the experience. Interesting. 
Tony, when you talked about some of the headwinds um, in North America in particular, when you hear about this talk about a recession, how much are you seeing the consumer spending drop or hold steady when you look at your customer base? Well, where that really reveals itself is in our REVPAR, or Revenue Per Available Room, which is the metric that is maybe the best barometer for business conditions. The good news is we continue to see positive REVPAR growth across North America. Uh, but as you heard in our most recent earnings call, it's low single digits. Right. And uh, so it's, it's modest, but it's growth. Those of us that have been doing this for a long time have been in environments where you've seen flat or even negative REVPAR growth environment. So we're, we're cautiously optimistic given that we continue to see positive growth. All right. Well, we look forward to hearing more about this uh, big experiment going on with All Inclusive. Tony Capuano is Executive Vice President, Chief Global Development Officer, Marriott International. Peggy Collins went into this weekend with an eye firmly looking toward Hong Kong after all of those protests last week at the airport, knowing that people were going to take to the streets. And certainly they did uh, there in Hong Kong all weekend. The images were so arresting, all the rain, the umbrellas, hundreds of thousands of people uh, marching through the streets. But where do we stand now? We're going to pose that question to Andy Brown. He is editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. Joining us, dialing in from Holiday in New Hampshire, extra credit to him. Andy, great to have you with us. Thanks. Great to be here, Jason. All right. So help us understand where we are now because I feel like this weekend – People were approaching with, I don't want to say a sense of dread, but certainly a sense of expectation that it might go hard one way or the other. What did you see? Yeah, so, you know, the the, the Chinese government has been attempting to paint these demonstrations as the work of terrorists. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody was fearing, myself included, that this was uh, indicated that some kind of military crackdown either by the People's Liberation Army or by paramilitaries might have been imminent. Um, And in fact, what happened this weekend is that you had a return to peaceful, orderly demonstrations. Um, And it sort of showed yet again that uh, the sentiments and the demands behind these demonstrations are held broadly across Hong Kong society. Uh, People in Hong Kong want greater democracy. They want more say uh, in their government. Uh, They want to have an inquiry into what they perceive to be police brutality. Many of them would like the current leader, Carrie Lam, to step down. It still has, these demonstrations still have a lot of support among ordinary, sensible, sophisticated, middle-class people in Hong Kong. Andy, how much do you think the the memory of Tiananmen Square and how that was digested around the world is is affecting China's response today to Hong Kong? Yeah, well, you'll, you'll hear people saying, you know, that the lesson China learned from this was, you know, never again. Um, actually, uh, I think it might have been the opposite. 
I mean, if you think about it, you know, back in 1989, after the People's Liberation Army put down these protests with huge loss of life, hondreds, perhaps thousands of people were killed around Tiananmen Square. People said, you know, this is going to set China back, the economy back by a generation. Not at all. As a matter of fact, what followed immediately after 89 was the greatest economic boom in history. Um, you know, the sanctions uh, had very little, U.S. and uh, Western sanctions had very little effect. They were pretty much shrugged off. About a decade, just over a decade later, the United States ushers China into the World Trade Organization. A few years after that, um, you, you know, the whole world troops to, to Beijing for the Summer Olympics. Um, the lesson that Xi Jinping may take away from this is we could ride out any storm. Yeah, it's so interesting the the way that this is turned. I want to go back to something you said just a, a minute ago, Andy, which is about Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong. And and you say pretty strongly in your column, and keep me honest here, this is at least the way I read it, she's got to go. She's She's ineffective and – one of the things that needs to happen here is you need a new CEO in there who can actually start to act with some sort of authority to get this resolved. Help me understand that. Well, the, the fundamental problem here is that you have a political arrangement that Beijing has set up in Hong Kong, which guarantees that the Hong Kong leader represents Beijing in Hong Kong rather than represents the interests of Hong Kong and Beijing. In other words, nobody from the administration dares go up to Beijing and reflect the true feelings of Hong Kong and put, put together a reasonable set of requests or demands um, that would make Hong Kong governable. And it would have to do with political reform and economic reform in the territory. So, you know, Car- Carrie, Carrie Lam is... is, is, is uh, 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 ridiculously unpopular now in Hong Kong. She's lost authority. She's lost credibility. Something needs to happen to break this cycle now um, of, of, you know, repression on the one hand, uh, and 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 sort of you know, resistance to that repression. Um, it seems to me that you know a change of leadership um, might be able to jog something loose here. Hong Kong needs a change. Um, you know, something needs to happen to break this cycle. Andy, what, if anything, has surprised you as these protests in Hong Kong have gone on for almost two months now, and they've seemingly gotten even more organized in terms of protesters shutting down the airports in recent weeks? What, if anything, has surprised you about how they've unfolded? Yeah, so, well, the first the first thing I, I think that has surprised people is um, – uh, you know, how persistent the demonstrators have been. I mean, we're now in the 11th, is it, the, the, the 12th week. Um, uh, you, you've had intimidation tactics from China. They've been showing endless videos on propaganda networks in China showing the People's Armed Police exercising just across the border in Shenzhen, all kinds of suggestions that, you know, a crackdown is in the offing. And yet the Hong Kong people really... You know, they, they, they're determined. They, they are really not going to give up. It's as though, you know, this is their last chance. Um, their backs are up against a wall. I mean, it, it, it's sort of, in a sense, a cry of desperation. And so just about 30 seconds left here, Andy, what's the next thing you look toward? I mean, the assumption is they're back again next weekend in the streets of Hong Kong. It doesn't feel like we're going to see airport protests. What, what's the next big move here? And whose court is it in? Uh, well, I think the the, the the ball now is very much in uh, in China's court. 
the, the, the problem, though, you know, from their perspective is who do they negotiate with? Right. This, this demonstration, uh, you know, the protest movement is effectively leaderless, and China has rendered it so. The Hong Kong authorities have rendered it so by arresting, detaining, or effectively sending into exile um, leaders of earlier iterations of, of this protest. So now you're down to flash mobs, Molotov right. cocktails, and, and, and sort of, you know, guerrilla-style violence all over the city. Right. Well, more to come for sure. We know you'll be keeping an eye on it. Really grateful to get some time with you, uh, Andy. Enjoy the rest of your week off. Andy Brown is the editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. Joining us on the phone from New Hampshire. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week right here on Bloomberg Radio. We're grooving here on a Monday afternoon in the nation's capital. What a fool believes, very appropriate for this. And I have to say, this notion of deep fakes is one that I think we're going to be talking about for some time. Mark Bergen is a technology reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us across the country in our 960 studio in San Francisco. His story is featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. You can read it now on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Deep fakes can help you dance, but they're not always so innocent. So, Mark, talk us through this because you open the story with this Bruno Mars video. Mm-hmm. It's very cool and yet sort of ominous in a way. Yeah, so this was a video that went viral about a year ago uh, out of research out of Berkeley. Uh, and the story is just focused with uh, the, one of the lead researchers on, on that who uh, spent time at Google. Uh, and has been working on this this type of AI for a while, is now turning that to a company. And it's one of a handful of startups up here in Silicon Valley that are uh, basically trying to commercialize deep fakes or what they're called synthetic media. Um, and in the past year, we've certainly seen a lot more um, rising concern about that uh, for a very good reason. And Mark, what? How would you describe to people who may not have been following this as closely? Mm-hmm. What exactly does does constitute a deep fake? Yeah, the definition is a little squishy, but you know, you can basically this is it's artificial intelligence that's that's used to create images that look um, very convincingly real, right? And so there was a video of, of Speaker Pelosi um, earlier this year that was you know some people call that a deep fake, some people disagree. It's just sort of editing, video editing, but it, it looked like she was she was had her speaking and saying things that she clearly wasn't. It had her slurring her speech as if she was drunk, um, but that's sort of where. There are these systems, and, and what this company has is they can take a, a, you know, let's say Bruno Mars in this case dancing, and then impose that and take footage of me uh, moving around, um, not quite as well, eloquently. And then that's I can not fair, Mark, because like, you're a terrific dancer. <laughs> Everyone knows you're a terrific dancer. Uh, but it's, it's basically, you know, we have there's a this amazing Bill Hader interview where he does these impersonations of Tom Cruise. You can look for it on YouTube, and then. You're, his face is turned, they take footage of Tom Cruise, and it looks just like Tom Cruise. Um, so in that way, it's a sort of a very convincing um, fake video, which is this new world that we've never encountered before. Well, and it feels like we're talking more and more about this. You mentioned Nance 
Nancy Pelosi, you know, mm-hmm. we're obviously here in the nation's capital, Peggy and I. And going into 2020, I mm-hmm. have to think a lot of political operatives, a lot of campaigns, a lot of candidates themselves have to be really worried about this. Yeah, I think, you know, we are seeing there's a lot more conversation now about this, certainly because of the 2016 election and with Facebook and, and uh, YouTube and Twitter are on misinformation. There's a lot more awareness. The tech companies, new startups are at least talking about this in a way that I, I think you know Silicon Valley didn't say even three years ago. Uh, they're certainly talking a lot about verification, whether it's watermarks that you, you can automatically see, okay, this video has been manipulated, um, or some sort of uh, system like a blue check mark on, on Twitter that says this is a legitimate video that hasn't been tampered with, and, and then here's one that has been tampered with. Um, but there are some researchers that have looked at this and still say you know, the unintended consequences of the technology were not really prepared for that. Um, and certainly Congress is thinking about that. Uh, the big tech platforms are thinking about that. Um, no one's really come up with a um, working solution yet. And, Mark, it sounds like there's new businesses that could essentially come out of <laughs> trying to protect people from this. I think so, yeah. You, you know, you'll have, in any case, you have a new business building it. You have people building the tools that can um, like the guardrails put in place. Um, this is certainly going to be, you know, like a lot of investors are excited about this for video game, for animation studios, for Hollywood, right? This is a very expensive processes in order to um, create footage and compress it digitally. And now you basically have this, this AI system that can cut down the time and reduce the costs. Um, so from the financial side, it's very exciting. Uh, clearly, they also need to put in a sort of ethical um, and, you know, it's editorial. Right. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> Make sure it's safe and not dangerous. Yeah. Well, and as you say, Mark, I mean, this is coming at a time where I feel like so many of us are raising an eyebrow or, or more, mm-hmm. at, certainly here in Washington, about the power and the influence that these tech companies have. This feels like a, a really important and obvious element of that. Uh, it is. I think we, we've seen uh, YouTube and Facebook have put out um, this really their, their policies around this. Their um, it, it's not a clear line. That yeah. with the, but going back to Pelosi example, Facebook decided not to take that down, um, right. and U- YouTube did. And YouTube cited a policy they had about about deepfakes and manipulated footage. That's um, so interesting that one decided one and the yeah. other didn't. Interesting. Uh, and that will I, th- I think that's going to only con- con- going to continue. Um, I think the platform is certainly thinking about sort of what ground rules they can put out and and put them out publicly. Um, but as we've seen in the past couple of years, those rules are, are not – it's kind of a, the line in the sand can easily yeah. be moved. Absolutely. All right. It's a great story. Deep fakes can help you dance, but they're not always so innocent. It's in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week coming out later this week, but you can read it now on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. I'm in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
It is time for the drive to the close. Jason Kelly and Peggy Collins here with you in Washington, D.C., our Bloomberg 99.1 studio. Delighted to have Margie Patel back with us. She is Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager for Wells Fargo Asset Management. They're looking after $495 billion dollars call that a half a trillion dollars. She joins us on the phone from Boston. Margie, great to have you back with us. Thanks. Good to be here. All right. So talk to us about this market over the last week or so, especially because it has been, to use a technical term, bananas. I mean, just watching (laughs) it go back and forth, you know, these big swings, a big swing up today. What's the primary driver here from your perspective? I think the primary driver is uh, interest rate trends. First of all, the the, uh, tariff issue, which goes up and down with uh, negotiations or talk on both sides, uh, and how that will impact the economy. Will it slow it down? And then mainly everything everything is really focused on rates. Uh, Will rates ever go up? Will they go down? Will the Fed make another cut? Is it giving us information, these very low rates implying that we're on the brink of a recession? And uh, I think that's really what's whooping the market around uh, with each each little day. So, Margie, with all this talk about a recession, how are you talking to your clients who say, hey, should I move stuff around in my 401k because things are looking ugly? Well, I absolutely don't think we are on the brink of a recession. I think that we are going to have a period of slower growth say 1.5% or 2%, a little bit lower. And I think that really is due to the inappropriate tightening the Fed had on last year. So it'll take a while to get the effects of the Fed making some cuts this year in short rates. So I think by the end of the year, the slowdown will abate, and we may even see a little bit of a pickup hmm. in U.S. growth. Maria, so I just the opposite ask- of recession. Right. So, Margaret, just a follow-up on that point. So in terms of the Fed cutting and uh, potentially too much last year. When you talk about the Fed cuts, it's 25 basis points. So a lot of times I hear people say, well, geez, if we can't go up 25 basis points, is there something underneath the water in the economy that's not as solid as it should be? Yes. Well, last year, they they actually raised rates all year. They've only begun to change course this year when the uh, financial market persuaded them to look again at their policy. So uh, low rates, but too tight for the economy. I think there are two things going on. We have the economic cycle bouncing along with the news and so forth. And the other point is, it's inescapable that we're in a secular decline in interest rates around the world. Japan was first, Europe was next. We're following on that same path. So I don't think you can take a lot of information about what rates are telling us about the economy. I think in some ways, uh, rates for treasuries have become a little bit unhinged from economic activity. Uh, if the Fed uh, tells bank don't lend, don't make risky loans, which they do from time to time, that, of course, would have an effect, a dampening effect on the economy. And so, Margie, what do you do here as an investor then with that sort of backdrop? Are there certain places, certain sectors maybe, where you look especially fondly and others that maybe you avoid? Well, yes, I think in general, the uh, corporate bond market, uh, particularly high yield below investment grade bonds, look pretty attractive for fixed income investors because they offer a yield of, say, four and a half to six and a half. And then you really have to look at the equity market because now we have virtually the whole treasury curve yielding less than the generic yield of the standard and poor, e.g., 2%. So that says to me that we may have muted growth, muted return in equities, but if we get a 2% dividend and even a few points, 
points of, of um, gain in the equity market, we should outperform fixed income. So I think growth the equities paying a dividend will be the best place to be over the next six months. How concerned are you, Margie, that by staying by rates staying lower for longer, people potentially reaching for yield in more and more places, that it will create ultimately an asset bubble or asset bubbles? You know, I almost think the Fed has been hoping we'll see that, uh, but it just hasn't happened. Consumers have not been increasing their, their leverage in spite of these very low rates. The only place you've seen a big increase, of course, is student loans. Uh, corporations also have not been increasing. So people and corporations really have not been responding to these very low rates to go crazy. And uh, here and there, you can see some excesses in the equity market, in the, in the fixed income market. But I don't see any bubbles out there from these low rates. I think they are, as I said, really detached from economic activity. Margie, talk to me about the line that uh, Chair Powell has to walk coming up later this week when he takes the podium uh, out at Jackson Hole. What do you need to, to hear from him or what are people expecting to hear from him? Well, what I would like to hear is examining the intellectual framework of what is a neutral rate uh, for interest rates and what they're really thinking about allowing the balance sheet to run off and uh, recognizing the connection between interest rates and economic activity is much looser today than it's ever been. So really more a change of their intellectual approach from the approach that the Fed has had over the last uh, you know, four or five decades. And how about the trade impact, Margie? How much is that uncertainty really rattling the markets, do you think? I think for the U.S. market, the real effect on the economy is rather small, a few tenths of a percent negative, to be sure. I think more in the emerging markets and China-related economies will feel the impact of any slowdown more so. But there again, I think it's rather mild and, and certainly not enough to derail the economy, push us into a recession, maybe take growth from you know, 2% to 1.5%, something like that. But that's not a recession. Biggest fear, 30 seconds, Margie, biggest fear for the rest of 2019? Uh, I would say that the Fed acts inappropriately and doesn't respond to this inexorable pool of rates even lower. All right. Margie Patel, what a treat to catch up with you as always, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager for Wells Fargo Asset Management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.